electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. And Fast Money does start right now live from New York. I am Brian Sullivan. Your traders tonight are Pete Nigerian, Tim Seymour, Steve Grasso, and good Guy Adami. The markets continue to cry mayday as your stock investments falling again in what has been a month to forget. Nervous buyers, though, they've been barging into bonds as more and more warning signs crop up in the market. But don't you fear. We have got you covered. Joe Zidel of Blackstone on why there may be more of this stomach-churning action ahead. Top technician Mark Newton on what to buy now. And RBC Salima Croft will weigh in on the crude oil collapse. And that, my friends, is what they call a big hour. And we're going to get to that and those guests. But we begin with the markets getting spooked. The 10-year yield hitting its lowest level since September of 2017. The Dow falling 221 points. Yes, that sounds bad, but put in perspective, we were cut 400 points at the lows of the session. Guy Adami. Yes, sir. Good Guy Adami. Do you of take course. any solace in the fact that we came about 200 points off the low and the China-related stocks, the semiconductors, they actually ended higher. Since then, Chris Verone spoke to exactly that last night. And welcome back once again, Brian Sullivan, doing yeoman's again. work. We again. That's what I said. You're doing, you're doing sure. a great job here. And I think the Bulls will take, I think the Bulls will be happy that the S&P 500 defended the 200-day moving average, bounced off it seemingly. That sets up pretty well for them, I guess, going into the rest of the week. I will still say this. I think we need to trade down to 26.50 or thereabouts in the S&P. And I've been pretty steadfast on that. I think that's where the market needs to go. It's not out of the realm of possibility that a 10% correction, given the move we've had since December, is, is feasible. And quite frankly, why I think we, it's very healthy. Why do we healthy. need to trade They don't down. need to do anything. Maybe I used the wrong word. I think that's what the market should do. Let's put it that way. Why should it? Because that would, to me, that would... It would be somewhat symmetrical. It would make a lot of sense. It's a 50% retracement. It's a 50% retracement from the, off the December from the 24th lows, low and the recent high. From the lows to the recent highs, it's a 50% retracement. So that makes perfect sense if the mar markets were logical. Okay, well, then, okay, hold on then, That's Steve. I, th I, thought you, I thought everybody was saying China was in control of the market. If not, they say the Fed is in control of the market. Sounds like you, Mr. Grasso, are saying the technicals are in control of the market. No, I, I think it's a, it's a confluence of everything, and, and it depends on what the market wants to focus on. I think the most important thing is the Fed. As long as the Fed stays dovish, this market can rally back to those old highs. So, you know, bond yields are certainly uh, representative of many things, but there's bond yields and then there are credit spreads. Uh, so far, credit spreads have actually hung in there. What was interesting is yesterday, uh, the junk ETF by, by uh, State Street saw $429 million outflow, which is the biggest the outflow we've seen since December, and effectively uh, a 4.8% of underlying assets. If you start to see credit spreads widen out, so far, hey, look, inflation, if anything, is, is benign. Year-over-year, core 
PCE is about one and a half percent. If anything, you're getting these these indications the Fed is going to be cutting, not hiking rates. Uh, I still think, by the way, and UBS makes this point in a bunch of their macro notes, is that the impact, the lag impact of the Fed tightening cycle may not even have been totally uh, felt upon equity markets. And that's, you know, that's a headwind that I think markets don't. You're making an important point. I mean, the theme of this market, you know, Pete, and you and your brother talked about it extensively, by the way, on halftime today, talked about a rate cut. Because let's be clear, there's a lot of chatter about how tariffs are going to raise consumer prices. Most people you talk to the bond market, as we have, as all of you guys have, they're talking about deflation, not inflation. Yep, you're right. No, and and we're hearing more and more about that. I mean, when it comes back down to it, though, the one positive I took away from today's market was we finally had volume, Brian. For the last five days, our volume's been absolutely awful. I mean, really, really just significantly off the averages. And now we finally got a little bit of volume. A little bit of that volume came, obviously, when we had that turn in the market. The other thing that was interesting all day long was the volatility index was not moving. I mean, we got into the 18 levels. We should have been trading in the 20s when we're down 400 points on the Dow. Why didn't it's that up 40% move? this month, I believe. is the Oh, number. it's up significantly, no doubt. We were just at 15 just three, four, five days ago. So we, we're seeing a move to the upside. But given the kind of move, if you look at the intraday move today, on top of the fact of where we actually closed down a couple hundred points, that volatility should be a lot higher. I was looking for opportunities. But I was hoping today that we'd see more volatility thrown into the market. Let me ask you, though, what I asked Guy, and Tim chime in on yeah. this as well. Sure. Do you find any well. the fact that we turned around, okay? Yep. We turned around semiconductors, the Corvos of the world, the names that have just been, they've got the highest percent of their revenue exposed to China, according to Goldman Sachs, and they just got crushed. Those names have come back today. Any, you think that's a turn, a meaningful turn, or a one-day one? Pieces of China were turning today in front of that. And I'd also say, when you're talking about the semis right now, how about the fact that Cypress Semi was out there and there was a big, at least there was chatter about something maybe in the works there. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why suddenly I think people decided they wanted to have a bid back into some of these names that have been absolutely crushed over the last couple I, of weeks. I, I just think it's all about positioning. Nothing happened. There were no headlines. There's nothing day over day to say, hey, jump in here. Uh, you had oversold conditions in semiconductors. If anything, if you want to look a little bit longer term, you know, the, what, what we saw highlighted last week in the leading economic indicators in the U.S., which was that you had this, this market PMI ISM figure that was at three-year lows, which tells you that the U.S. continues to go lower on its leading economic mm-hmm. indicators. Some think that Asia might be the first to recover and that you could see this divergence in terms of your asset allocation. Some of this stuff, like semiconductors, like Apple, which has become a semis play, um, are things that you could start to see to outperform if you think Asia is going to recover. Is your, is your question, has it gotten as bad as it could get? Or is that where you're leading us to? If, 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 if the China in the bull shop... I like that. See what you did. Yeah, yeah. it's straight. Is I think everybody did. Around. Really everybody saw it. Well, 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 if, the, if, there, if that is that is the first to recover. <laughs> It was it, the first to get hit. Here's the thing. Wasn't, is it the sign the of a broader... In the trade war, war, wasn't the new thing that China was going to be selling treasuries? Wasn't that the new scare? And is that no, off no, the no. table Only six, six ding-dongs said that. No, I mean, there, was was never, of, there was a lot, a lot of, of ding-dongs. Well, I've been hearing that for years. <laughs> I, I don't, they're not in a position no to one's do that. The China so can have nowhere to go with their money. Anybody who says China's going to sell treasuries, forget about it. There's nowhere else that was a worry. So if you're not worried about that, then the imbalance, they can't do anything to us that we can't do to them. So that was the other thing where it wasn't going to be a tit for tat. It was going to be them selling treasuries. So to your point, if they can't do that or the other, 
then the market might have absorbed what's the worst case scenario. Wasn't the ding dong the alternative to the yodel? Ring ding. Yeah. No, no, no. Ring, ring ding, ding or the yodel. And that was lunch for me. Ring six ding. Ding dongs back ding. in I'm not day. trying to offend anybody who said that China may sell treasuries. No, you're not trying to talk about If you talk to people who are really trying to help you out here. I'm not offending anyone who said treasuries. He just called them ding dongs. I'm trying to help you out here. Ding dongs are delicious. Okay, here's the thing. Guy down me. I don't want to get into politics. No, quit. But let me just. Hold on. Another question. I want to turn the conversation. And I hate politics. I feel like I have to take a hot shower when you talk about it. There's other networks that do it. But in the sense of the market, at about 11.05, Mueller made comments about the president, and the market took a steep leg down. Does those, do those Mueller comments about basically Congress can decide what they want to do with regard to the president, greater uncertainty, did that have anything to do with the turn today? I mean, to your point, it clearly did, because after he spoke, the market went from being down 220 to about, down about 3 In about 30 so. minutes. Right. So I guess, yeah. But I think it's, to me, it's a lot of just noise. I think it's a sideshow. I don't think the Mueller investigation or post-Mueller investigation is going to have any effect on this market. To your earlier point, though, about some of these semi-names, Chris Verone, who came on the show last night, you remember because you were sitting there pretty much said exactly what was going to happen today. He said there's a chance that the broader market underperforms, but these semis have been so beat up down 14% over right. the last couple of weeks that you'll see a bounce. And that's what you saw today. So good for him. The market sold off when they knew that he was, Mueller was going to speak. The market rallied off of him speaking. Congress will not be able to impeach the president. They don't have the votes. The Senate's not there. So I think the market's looking past that. I think this was all trade concerns. I, okay. I, I think look, the bottom line here is it, it is about positioning. It is about conditions. You do get to oversold. Market sentiment has gone from basically being euphoric in three weeks. If you look at bull bear spreads, if you look at the AAII indicators, whatever you want to follow to indicate where markets are positioned on sentiment, have moved appropriately more bearish. Um, nothing has changed in the tape. Nothing has changed in the fundamentals. People People are going to still gravitate towards counter cyclicals. Uh, you're going to see, uh, look, semis may have been a, a, a buy today, mm -hmm. but there's nothing out there right now that's going to tell you you should go buy semis tomorrow. Okay, well, listen, we had a broad discussion there. So if you think the stock market may move higher this year, a lot of bulls still out there, your next guest says you might be out of luck. Mm. Blackrock, Blackstones, Joe's Idol says April may have been like a Jack Nicholson movie, as good as it gets. And he joins us now. Have we seen the top for the year, Joe? I think we have. Welcome. Good to see you. Thank you. I think we have seen the top for the year. I think as long as trade lingers, we're going to have a very difficult time uh, uh, seeing any new highs in, in equities. And I think credit spreads have probably seen their tights for the year as well, which they saw back in, uh, in April. I think uh, our base case is that we will get a trade deal. I just don't think we're going to see it anytime soon. My guess is all of 2019, this is an issue that's going to linger. It's going to weigh on growth. It's going to weigh on corporate profits. It will weigh on sentiment. Is the bond market in charge or is the stock market moving the bond market? Who's leading whom? This time, I think it's credit markets that are leading equities lower. And that's very different from what we saw at the end of 2018 when markets cratered, right? Then it was equities that took credit lower. Uh, this time we're seeing the reverse. and I think we need to pay attention to that. You know, equities are within four to five percent of their highs that we saw back in April. But credit spreads aren't really showing any signs of, of turning around. I think that sends a message. The message is economic growth here could get hit by this phase of the trade war. So this triple B threat we talk about, or at least we hear about, because we look at essentially that one, one notch above junk is mm -hmm. the biggest tranche of, of debt outstanding. Blackstone, to me, is one of the firms that 
I believe is on the cutting edge of what's going on with credit. Um, how do you deal with this, and is it something that you can say now, based upon the expectations you have on growth, that you guys will be doing in your portfolios? Well, there's some good news out there, and that is this is not the end of the economic expansion. It's not the end of the bull market. I think this is going to end up looking like a late-cycle pause by the time this is all said and done, because I don't think the trade war is going to be a big enough issue to push the U.S., China, or the global economy into recession. Europe's in a very weak spot, and we could very well see the big three in Europe being Italy, Germany, and France all in recession in 2019. But even a European recession is not going to be enough to pull the United States into a recession. So I think the silver lining here is this is an economic expansion that's going to continue for years. And when all said and done, this is going to look like a very ordinary pullback. Since 1960, if you look at every single calendar year since 1960, the average drawdown for the S&P 500 ends up being about 13% over the course of any given calendar year. That could very well be the case this year. But longer term, those issues in the corporate bond market, I don't think are going to be issues anytime soon. Because while we might have trade as an issue, we might have corporate profits as, as an issue, we have a very accommodative Federal Reserve. I think rates stay low for a very long time. And they could end up steepening the yield curve by essentially reinvesting all those bonds that are going to be rolling off starting September. They could reinvest those at the short end of the curve push low rates down while the long end stays here or maybe even goes higher. Joe, it's a bold call. I respect it. Quick, we have six months left in the year, give or take. Fed rate cut, does that change your calculus at all? I'm in the camp that a Fed rate cut actually is bearish, but could that actually take the market to new highs? It would certainly help, right? Because you think about what drives valuation, it's earnings and interest rates. So if the Fed does cut, I think that helps. That said, I don't think the Fed actually has to cut. I think this is an overreaction that we're seeing uh, with respect to trade. I mean, we've seen this massive flight to quality with the 10-year falling to 2.2 and change. Uh, my guess is that the 10-year is hitting cyclical lows right now, and we're going to see it rebound. So we could see a yield curve steepening, which is going to be good for the economy, and it doesn't actually require the Fed to do much at all. Does that three-month 10-year inversion signal to you a recession? So it doesn't sound like you think it does. Now, the three-month, 10-year is not the most predictive part of the I, I know the 210 is, but it's like you've got to start somewhere. And Jay Powell, the Fed chairman, had referenced yep. the three-month versus 10-year at one point a couple of months ago. That's why we look at it. Yeah, the trick to the 10-year to three-month is you've got to do a lot of math to make it produce a good signal. It has to invert, for instance, for 10 days in a row. Who knows why? It has to average minus 15 basis points over the course of three months. Who knows why? You don't find that with the 10-year versus the two-year. In other words, the 10 twos is a cleaner signal. The bad news about the 10-year three-month is this. Historically, when it inverts, the rest of the curve falls in a line eventually, which means the data tells us the 10s, twos will invert, just not necessarily anytime soon. You know, there was one thing, guys, very quickly that, ch that happened today that didn't get any attention because trade is just eating the headlines. Yep. The Trump administration effectively threatened Europe over their dealings with Iran. They said, if you deal with Iran, you're going to lose your access to the capital markets. We got Italian banks. We talked about it last night, down 20% in 30 days. Deutsche Bank down again today. Are we not worried enough, Joe, about Europe? Well, I think Europe could end up uh, really seeing very trillion tough. $19 trillion economy, by the way. Yeah, very tough conditions. And Italy's already in a recession. Uh, if there's a silver lining to that, it's that they know how to handle recessions really well. They they're have good three at it. They do about six a year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like three, <laughs> three since 2008. They know what they're doing. Uh, Germany and France could, could, could very quickly follow. I think it's going to push the ECB to another one of these do-whatever-it-takes moments, right? Draghi did that in 2012. Uh, uh, prior, yeah, I think 2012, prior to the London Olympics, was, was when he gave that speech, whatever year that was. Uh, and obviously, there's going to be a new ECB chair soon, but I think the ECB is going to have to panic. And when they do, my guess is... Is that a buy signal? 
sometimes panic can be a buy signal. Well, you, you want know, liquidity ends up being That's, that's what I'm saying. Rise. If you said but if Super Mario is going to do this, smash yeah, the recession turtle with a hammer, right, he's going to throw money at it. If you have a problem that can be solved with money, then it's not a problem anymore. It's wow. good advice. Oh. Take that one home. Wise. <laughs> like like he's like an owl with a graduation <laughs> cap. <laughs> Sounds like his wife might have told him that last I've time. I've used that one at home plenty of times. Literally, think about wise that. Owl. How many licks does it take to get to the center of a tootsie ball? Joe, thank you very much. Appreciate that. Guys, thoughts, thoughts around the table. He thinks the highs for the year are in. Anybody disagree with that? Anybody agree with that? Well, I, I would just say that I, I think it's very difficult to argue for the equity markets how, how anything but counter cyclicals will, will, will be bid. Um, and, and I think that's probably between now and into 2020. That, mean, that means companies that, that are not semis, that, that are not going to be uh, you know, financials. You know, Dan Nathan and I have sparred over the last six months about banks. He's largely been right. Um, I, I don't think financials are the home of, of the next blow up, but I do think banks cannot outperform in an environment like we have. I love it. The one time you say he's right, he's not here. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Why would I say that he's here? You know, I, I tend to agree with what Joe's talking about in terms of have we seen the highs. I still think you got to understand, like Mike Wilson's pointing out all the time to us, this is a rolling bear market. So it doesn't mean like everything's going down and you can't buy anything. I think there are opportunities that still present themselves every single day. It's just a little bit more difficult because a day like today was almost impossible, right? You're down 400 points and it just suddenly started to melt back up and then we're only finishing down 200 points. The semis were strong. You look at China, that was strong. The FXI, look at Brazil, look at the FXI. Both oh, traded okay. Yeah, yeah trading well. in positive territory didn't really make sense, though, yep. based upon what we were seeing in the market. So it just makes it, it that much more difficult. It makes sense, Steve Grasso. People are saying maybe the worst is over. I, I believe that. I, I don't think the positioning is as bad as it was in December. I think there's a risk to the upside. Once these trade conversations start to have a better tone, and as long as the Fed stays soft, I think that we're good, and I don't think that the highs are in for the year. I do think we can climb back to those levels. Quickly, one thing I've been saying for a while is you'll know it's over to the downside when the market has a big down day, rallies late, still closes lower, and the VIX closes unchanged. You didn't get that today, but I'll close. tell you, it was, cl it was close. So just throwing that well, out tomorrow's, there. Tomorrow's an important day. We'll see if there's Every any day is important, Brian. Tomorrow's more important than today. Than today. More on the sell-off throughout the hour. A top technician will join us to lay out where your money is likely to go from here. We're going to use the charts to predict where things are headed. Plus, oil doing something almost nobody thought it would, falling. But RBC Salima Croft says there's something that investors are missing about oil. She's here. And retail getting smoked. Two big names losing investors more than 20% of their money today. The who, the what, and the why. Live from Times Square in the Big Apple. More Fast Money after this. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. PBH, the old Phillips Van Heusen, out with its earnings after the bell, shares the apparel company sinking on those results. 
Let's get right now to Rahel Solomon, who's back at HQ with the details. Rahel. Hi, Brian. Yeah, PVH down uh, about 32% on the quarter. And uh, right now, trading at one point at more than 10%. After the close, PVH posted mixed earnings and weak guidance. Tommy Hilfiger is the biggest contributor to sales for PVH, sales for this group, and Calvin Klein both missing expectations. In the earnings note, CEO Manny Chirico also mentioned a particular softness across the U.S. and China retail landscape. And just minutes ago, Chirico sat down with Jim Cramer and spoke about what's behind that weakness. Particularly in our areas, you know, this, the discussion around tariffs and the trade dispute, it hasn't hit us at no. this point yet. So uh, that's not the issue that we're seeing going forward. What we're really just seeing is a slowdown in growth and a slowdown in, in, uh, in retail sales uh, in general as, as we're looking at it. Big Im impact here in the U.S. is lack of international tourism and tourism purchasing. Now, it wasn't just PVH taking a beating today. A slew of other big retail names also getting hit off their earnings results. Canada Goose had its worst trading day since going public in 2017, closing down just under 30 percent there. Abercrombie & Fitch also down more than 26 percent, 26.47 percent at the close. And Capri Holdings and Dix also contributing to retail's slump today. Now, coming up on Mad Money, we're going to hear more from Jim's interview with Manny Chirico. That's tonight at 6 on CNBC. Now, last time he was on the show, it was coming off a positive earnings report, guys. So we'll see if his tune has changed. I'll send it back to you, Brian. All right, Rahel, thank you very much. All right, well, that stock down 24% in a month, now at a 30% discount to its historical valuation. So what do we make of the PVH results as they relate to the retail crush? The stock has been cr investors have been crushed in PVH. Well, it, it shows you how fickle the buyers can be, right? I mean, how they bounce around from one to the other. And this is a company that's done a great job in terms of its digital, but it's got to grow in, in all their different categories, and they're just not doing that right now. That's the problem. Is it inexpensive? Absolutely. Did it get even cheaper? It certainly did today. But that guidance, that's it's something, I think it's Brian, at 10 and a half times It was 10 30s. before today. Yes. Oh, before but, today. Before the close. So a single digit now, right. by Oh, it's way. a single digit, yeah. Unless, unless those, that guidance is even worse than we think it is in terms of the year. But they were making approximately a, close to $10 a share. So it's really interesting to see how far this thing has fallen. I think at some point in time, it's an absolute buy, but probably not now. Uh, no. It's not today. When, it's when's not the worst over for retail? You, you gotta, after a, a, a day like today, the performance like today, you got to think we're getting close. Like you just said, we're getting close. But a name that you always bang the drum on is? TJX. TJX. Those are the people that reap the benefits of this issue with China. Of, of higher costs, of higher inventories, raw stores, TGX, O-L-L-I, Ollie's. All three of those are, are bets in this marketplace right you now. You know, I'm looking here at a screen that I built on retail. The average retail stock's down 13% this month. There's one name that's higher, one name, and that is Target. And, in fact, there's, just kind of quickly scanning it, probably 15 retailers that are down more than 20% oh. this Month. month. Come okay. on. So, month. so there's a couple things about retailers, though, that, that, that put them right in the eye of the storm. First of all, I think apparel uh, manufacturers absolutely are hit by tariffs. They're one of the few places where actually there is a feed through to the inflationary side of their business. Um, you've, you've, you've seen sensitivity to the retailer uh, with the overall with interest rates. And you've underperformed on the on the XRT, the, yep. the essentially the retail ETF, by 15 percent in the last 96 let, sessions. Let me, okay, hold on. Let me give you a bull case scenario we talked about on Worldwide Exchange the other day. And you Wex. tell me. If if you think it's if, you, if it's bunk or there's something to it, number and, and and no one else is talking about it, but we will, which is this: number one, 
okay, they're going to squeeze their suppliers when those higher tariffs hit like they've never squeezed them before. When the tariffs go away, assuming they do, you think they're going to lower prices? Of course not. There is a long-term, so potentially, potentially long-term positive story for retailers that nobody seems so to be So, guy, we're going to play a game here. He started, we're going to call it bunk or funk. And would you say this is bunk or is funk? funk or? Is yeah. funk mean I don't believe funk it? Funk is BS. Funk is... I think is, there's some funk, funk to that. Good, yeah. And we got to be careful with this game. It could be dangerous, but I agree. The problem is... Yes, is funk. How long is this going to last? Again, I'll say, I don't think... I think we're further away from a deal with China than we were six months ago, and I think that chasm continues to widen, Brian. Even Sullivan. when the retail tariffs hit, though, Guy, retailers have been moaning and groaning on CNBC and whatever for six years. they got no pricing power. There's too much inventory. Guess what, retailers? Now you've got cover to raise prices on your stuff and blame the tariffs instead of saying, well, we have to raise prices. The consumer, what, an extra 15% on a pair of jeans? You're talking, what, a buck 50 350 whatever the price. That, I don't know, those dad jeans, a couple hundred bucks. Oh, First you get my... <laughs> I'm not oh. wearing... T- I'll get up and show you. I'm wearing slacks. Don't, oh. don't, don't give that him that. That was funny. Don't give him that. That was pretty was. funny. There, there is a long... My point really is, good. are we track, over... Is anybody believe that we're over-worried about the tariffs? <laughs> no, I think yes. the market's under-worried about yes, the tariffs. No, I think but that's another conversation. All right, for more on the retail space, <laughs> you can head to tradingnation.cnbc.com slash guys dad jeans. I'm Brian Sullivan. You're watching Fast Money. Jeans right now. This is you what's are. coming up. Investors have nowhere to run this week as the sell-off takes down the safety stocks. But a top technician says, fear not, because he has three names to take cover in. Plus, Cabs are here! Cabs are here! The cabs are here! The cabs are here. Because Uber is about to release its first earnings report as a public company. Find out what to expect when Fast Money returns. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. And welcome back to Fast Money. The tariff tantrum for stocks taking few prisoners. All 11 S&P groups are down this month. Even real estate and utilities. Those had been considered havens. Seema Modi is breaking it all down for the New York Stock Exchange. Seema. Yeah, Brian, that was what was so interesting about today's price action. The sell-off on Wall Street was widespread, leaving no sectors behind. And yes, even the interest rate-sensitive sectors that tend to outperform when yields fall, utilities, real estate, even consumer staples, all caught up in the market downturn. But with trade fears rising, investors have been buying up dividend-paying sectors. Check out utilities now up about 5% in the past six months, outperforming the broader market. 
But some traders say that the sector's valuation is becoming a bit rich, now trading at 19 times forward-looking earnings, much higher than its historical average of 14 times. It's also trading at a premium to the S&P 500, which is trading at 16 times. Also worth highlighting that the Russell 2000, yes, the small cap index seen as more insulated from the U.S.-China trade war as it generates a large percentage of its revenue right here in the U.S., but that hasn't stopped investors from hitting the sell button. The Russell 2000 underperforming the S&P 500 this month. It's already down about 6%, and a lot of analysts say that's because while these companies tend to be more domestically driven, they still source a lot of their components and parts from overseas. Brian, back to you. All right, Seema Modi, the NYC. Seema, thank you very much. Well, perhaps in this market, the old sports adage is true. The best offense is a good defense. And your next guest has three stocks that he says that you should think about buying now. Mark Newton's taking off the charts for us on those names. Mr. Hokey, Mark Newton, take it away. Thanks, Brian. So S&P today showed the first real sign of acceleration that we've seen in the last couple weeks. We see this trend that has undercut the lows from May. That was actually broken today, not only in S&P, but in NASDAQ, Dow, and in international indices, also like uh, stocks 50. So it does look like the technical structure remains negative, and we are going to see a little, little bit further weakness in the days ahead. Four things that suggest this is still possible. One is that we haven't really seen any real fear yet. Uh, we haven't seen the capitulation of volume into down versus up stocks. That's important. Second, we haven't seen VIX backwardation. Normally, that's a factor. Indices are not really all that oversold, either using traditional metrics. And fourth, we need to see more signs of stabilization in these sectors like technology that have really gotten taken out to the woodshed in recent weeks. And so as of now, none of those things are really in place. I'm looking at 27.22. That would be the first real level up to 27.30 to buy. With that in mind, it's been a very defensive rally in the last couple of weeks. Markets have sold off. What has outperformed? The defensive stocks. Let's take a look at Verizon. This is one of my top picks. Why is that? You look at the technical structure going back since the late 90s. This is at the highest level now that it's been at in over 20 years. This is a very important level going back since 1999. If anything, you look at what's happening in recent weeks, we've gotten up above. We've seen a minor breakout into the latter part of this year, consolidation, a little mini triangle. This is extraordinarily bullish, in my view, for the longer-term tape. Still pays a 4% yield. My thinking is it's right to be in stocks like this. Verizon is much better than AT&T technically. Uh, I would buy that. Another one I'm looking at, Avalon Bay, apartment REITs. They've outperformed almost every other part of the REIT sector. This one also, similar to the rest, had a big breakout early the latter part of last year. We've consolidated. Now it's just moving back up to new high territory. This is also very positive. This pays about a 3% yield. In general, decent technical structure. You notice giant bases leading to higher highs, higher lows. That's also very positive. What's the third one? I like Monster Beverages. I think this is an excellent technical pick. Many people will complain it hasn't done anything in the last few weeks, and they're right. You look over the last six months, the stock has done nothing. Important, though, to have a longer-term perspective. You look back over the last five years, decent long-term uptrend, nice tight consolidation within this uptrend. That normally is very bullish. I want to be a buyer here on any pullback we see in the next few days to the next couple weeks, thinking the stock does start to break out. The next big move should be to the upside. You know, Mark, great stuff. I would expect nothing else, by the way, of a Virginia Tech graduate. Monster Energy, the best-performing stock, I believe, in the S&P 500 in the last decade, up like 40,000% of something. So people may shy away from that. You say the charts show perhaps long-term more upside. 
Yeah, I mean, my thinking is this, this really hasn't seen anything else but just a minor consolidation. You want to look for stocks like this. The market's selling off, but yet stocks like this have not really given a lot back. So it's forming a decent base, and you really want to be a buyer for what I think is, is upside. In general, if you go back to the previous comment, are the highs in? I don't think the highs are in for the year. I'm looking for lows in the market over the next two weeks by mid-June at the latest. But 27.22, I do think S&P gets up to 30.40 to 30.70. The average stock, however, might not get back to those new so, highs so into Mark, the fall. A bunch of your picks, though, look to me, as you, as you stated, double toppy. I, for me, when I buy a stock that looks double or triple toppy, I wind up waiting until it breaks through that level and using that as my support. Would you suggest the same thing, or do you think that you buy it as it's running into that level of resistance again? Well, those are your words, not mine. I wouldn't say it as a double, <laughs> triple top. If anything, you know, these stocks are consolidating while the majority of stocks are falling. Indices have pulled back 5%. These are holding on and consolidating right near their highs. If anything, during times of market duress, it pays to buy these big dividend earners as they're consolidating for what I think is the next big move should be to the upside, particularly in stocks like Monster. Hey, Mark Newton, great to see you. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Those names again, Verizon, Avalon Bay, the big apartment community company, and Monster Energy. Guy Dom. Yes, sir. Any uh, of those names monster. stick out to you? I will tell you, I understand what Steve said. It's saying. been a monster. Go, huh? It's yeah, been has, a You said up 40,000% or something like that, and you said, great job by a fellow Virginia Tech guy. Listen to everything you say. It appears I don't pay attention, but I do. And I'll say this. I understand what Steve is saying, but there's a chance that this stock trades up to 70 on the back of the earnings they just reported a couple weeks ago. 70 was the all-time high back in 2018. That's where we trade up to. I tell you, $8 on a $61 stock percentage-wise is significant. I think he's right about that. I, I, staying with Monster quickly, I, I think there's enormous competition in the space now. Their top-line growth has been excellent. It's been low double digits. I think the Coke arbitration is a thing that still hangs over this stock until that's settled. I don't think you need to do anything. All right, guys, good conversation there, and thanks for the names, Mark. Oil prices, they have pretty much shocked everybody, despite Iran's sanctions. Venezuela's collapse in a near-civil war in Libya. Prices have gone down. Lee McCroft is here with why and what the market may be missing. Plus, CNBC's Julia Borston speaking with Disney CEO Bob Iger moments ago at Disneyland's new amazing Star Wars Galaxy's Edge theme park opening inside of Disneyland this week. We're going to bring you his comments when Fast Money returns. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. Crude oil falling alongside the broader market today. Not a lot, down eight cents, but under still 60 bucks a barrel. Iraq tensions, Iran tensions, supply fears, all of them dragging the commodity market deeper into bear market territory. Energy, by the way, from an equity perspective, is now the worst performing sector this month. Names like Apache, Marathon, Halliburton, Schlumberger, all down double digits. But your next guest says investors are ignoring one key catalyst to the oil market. Let's bring in somebody well known to any show beginning with the number five, Halima Croft, global head of commodity research at RBC. Halima what are we missing in oil right now? I, mean, I think we're missing what's likely to happen next month. We're going to have, hopefully, we're going to have an OPEC meeting next month where they're going to stay the course in the production cut. And then we really want to watch what unfolds with Iran tension. I think a lot of people just believe it's normal for the Middle East to see what's been going on, tankers being struck, pipelines hit. But what you want to watch is, I think, what happens on July 7th, because the Iranians have said, if the Europeans do not find a workaround arrangement for sanctions, they're going to increase their nuclear restart. So they're going to start enriching at higher levels, take us back close to that nuclear threshold. So I think and that's an important date to watch. I, did, I, did you hear earlier in the show, we talked about the news. They got no attention today, really, because of all the China-Trump stuff, which is this. 
the Trump administration effectively threatened Europe, the, oh, the vehicle that deals with Iran, and said, if you deal with Iran, we're going to deny you access to the U.S. capital market. So now Europe is caught between right. this vice. No, and I mean, I think this is a key story because the Iranians are basically saying they've already restarted enrichment, by the way. They've quadrupled their uranium production. They're about to breach their nuclear agreements. But if they do not get sanctions relief, I mean, Iran has seen their exports drop by over 2 million barrels since last year. They're basically saying our economy is about to implode. If we do not get any sanctions relief, we're going to fully restart our nuclear program. I don't think the market is even taking that into consideration. They're basically like, this is the same old news. And this is a very different story we're looking at this summer. Halima, can you talk about the supply-demand balance yes. and, and where we've certainly been at times, you know, obviously in the last, you know, two years ago, it was very out of kilter. We got to a place where actually we were starting to get to a draw. Historically, we haven't been responding to, to supply disruption dynamics, but it's clear we are here. So where are we? I mean, the market is actually tight. I mean, you wouldn't see that by the prices, but this market is a tight market. I mean, we've already seen, as I've said, Iran exports come down considerably since the U.S. announced that we're ending waivers for importers of Iranian oil. We've gone from about 1.3 million barrels they were exporting to now, by some estimates, around 400,000 barrels a day is what they're down to in terms of exports. Venezuela continues to collapse in terms of production. And the demand side has actually held up this yep. year. We've seen record Chinese imports this year. So we're selling off on a fear of China demand collapsing. Dollar. But, yeah, the dollar, but still, we haven't seen the demand story falter yet. Yep. Halima, what about the U.S. outproducing Saudi? What about the U.S. outproducing Russia? What about, if you could script a more bullish scenario for oil, I, I don't think you could have. You, you just went down a litany of six things that are definitely tailwinds for the price of oil. Yet, Maybe we're all missing something. Is it U.S. production? I mean, U.S. production has held up this year, but what we've seen is shale is not Superman. If you have President Trump calling the Saudis and saying, help me out, give me those barrels, that shows the limits of American energy dominance. Part of the problem is the barrels we're taking off the market are medium and heavy barrels. What does the U.S. produce? Lighter barrels. So there is a crude mismatch. Those Gulf Coast refineries that were taking the Venezuelan barrels, the replacement product comes from Saudi Arabia. So if Saudi's not giving those barrels, if Iraq doesn't give the barrels, if Canada has infrastructure problems, the U.S. shale story can't make up for that. And so shale has been a key bright spot for supply, yep. but it can't offset what we've taken off uh, of sanctions. I'm, I'm going to switch gears if I can. I'm going to sure. put you on the spot because I know you can handle it. What you may not know about Halima Croft, uh -oh. Tomb Raider, is that she's a former CIA analyst who was stationed in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And I asked, Are you even allowed I, to say that? Yeah, no, I used to spend time there. I, wasn't, I was not an operative. She was I was there. an analyst. You just gave, I feel like you just gave her up. Like We're not valid claim here. No, I was an analyst, Perfect. and I, I analyst. actually spent time in the DRC. There yes. you go. She just said it herself. And the reason I bring that up is this fight over rare earths. Yeah. DRC is where all the cobalt, which yes. if you want an iPhone battery, you got to get cobalt probably from the DRC. How do you see this rare earth fight playing out? Yeah, I mean, I've always said this about the sort of EV story. I've always said, look, the one, you know, problem with the EV success story is it's built on cobalt from places like the Democratic Republic of Congo. And so one thing I would say about China is they were fast to get in on the Africa resource story. I mean, they really have won the scramble for Africa. We gave it away. We it's, had Molly exactly. Corp. We had mines. We gave it away. They came in. We didn't think it was of strategic interest. The Chinese went into Angola. They went into DRC. They basically carved up Africa for their own economic and strategic interests. 
Halima Jack, Croft, who was never in the DRC and never worked for the CIA. I apologize. I don't even know her right Ever. now. She's not even Halima. here. It's not even I, my real name. I don't even know. <laughs> I'm not walking out Just keep with her it now. Down. I mean, Just there was a chance down. for all leaving again. Not, no, Jerry, and thank you own. very much for joining <laughs> us. <you>. All right. <laughs> Coming up, Uber skidding into its first earnings report down more than 12% from its IPO. And some traders are now betting on even bigger moves. We'll tell you which way. Plus, Disney's new Star Wars Galaxy's Edge Park opening in Disneyland this week. You're going to hear from CEO Bob Iger when Fast Money returns. Who's the leader? <laughs> All right, welcome back. Disney making a billion-dollar bet on Star Wars with its new park in California opening up this week. And Julia Borston sat down with CEO Bob Iger earlier today for an exclusive look inside Star Wars, Galaxy's Edge. And there is a, there's an unconfirmed rumor, mm. Julia, that you may have had access to the rides. I, I may have, Brian, but all of that is embargoed until 9 p.m. Eastern tonight. So you're going to have to tune in tomorrow morning to Squawk Box to see what that all looks like. But for now, I'm going to tell you what Disney CEO Bob Iger says about this. I'm here at Disney's Star Wars Galaxy Edge. I'm inside Disneyland. This is the newest land, uh, newest part of their park. They're going to have an opening ceremony for tonight. And then it opens to the public, um, to the folks who are coming here to Disneyland on Friday. Now, Bob Iger telling me that he believes the $1 billion investment in this 14-acre part of Disneyland will pay off. And note, it's opening with just one ride. Take a listen. Star Wars is an immensely popular property. And giving people who visit our parks, who have thought about visiting our parks, a chance to immerse themselves in Star Wars on a grand scale and in a much richer, deeper way is a big deal. And I think it will be extremely positive for the division and for the company and for Star Wars, too. I think it'll lift the entire franchise of Star Wars. Now, Disney does have a Star Wars series, live action series called The Mandalorian. That's going to be coming up on the Disney Plus app that is launching in November. Iger saying that all of this here at Disneyland should help heighten interest in the series on the subscription service and vice versa. Now, as for the trade war with China, I asked Iger about it. He says that it isn't yet impacting their business here in the U.S. or in China. Take a listen. Our visitation to our parks from China is relatively modest. There are other markets in the world, the U.K. and Canada and Mexico, other parts of Europe that are much bigger than China. But we've seen some nice growth, and I've read the articles about slowdown in Chinese visitation to the United States. I don't think we've seen anything that would be perceptible yet at our parks. I was just in Shanghai last week, and I can tell you that the popularity of that park is still extremely high. You can find more from my interview with Bob Iger on CNBC.com, and we'll have a look inside the park, including that ride that's a, a, a ride on, um, it's called Smuggler's Run. It's, it's a ride on the Millennium Falcon, as well as a look at some of the food here. That'll be on Squawk Box morning. morning. Guys, back to you. We will look forward to that. Julia Borston, thank you very much. Our guy, guys, let's trade this. First off, you heard Chinese attendance at Shanghai? Not doesn't appear to be down at all. No trade war there. Not surprised about that at all. I think the interesting thing is all the different verticals that Bob Iger has been able to create over the years. And you talk about a guy who's put money into content. He's really put that money there. And, and they continue to develop themselves into something that they weren't. I still say they were late to streaming, but now they're there. 
And then you look at ESPN Plus. I mean, they're doing a lot of things right, and I think the things they're doing right, they haven't even started to scratch the surface of where they'll be in the next two, three years with all the franchises, every, all the purchases, the investments that Bob Iger has made. I think they're starting to show up, and they'll show up even further as we get to 2020 and 21. Well, their, their content supremacy, I think, at least certainly in studios, is something that feeds through the rest of their product line. So yep. Pete's talking about this is a company that has parks, studios, consumer products in addition to their media arm. And look, the fact that Disney Plus has made the headlines is great because I do think it's been a catalyst, uh, but it's not the reason why you necessarily go out and buy Disney, although it is part of the reason why the multiple in Disney is so different than every other media company. Their content. I, I walked earlier today by Frozen, the musical. I was, there was a line of 600 right? was, kids yeah. and their parents. Wednesday. Their, their content <laughs> power they've got is so strong. It's matinee day. The, the content power That's guy, said it. is so strong for Disney. But do you worry that the ESPN drag is going to mitigate that. No, the ESPN drag We've was two years ago. The gambling is, I think, mitigated the drag itself. And I think the concern would be, is everything priced in with a 21 times forward earnings? That would be my hesitation. Okay. Meantime, check out Uber. Down more than 12% from its IPO. The company also out with earnings tomorrow. It's going to be a big one. What are the numbers you need to follow? We're going to let you know. We're here at the NASDAQ in Times Square where it's... Raining as hard as I've ever seen rain fall. We're back right after this. Come on. Fast Money. Uber is gearing up for its first ever earnings report as a public company. That will be tomorrow. The stock falling 2.5% today and down almost 12% from its IPO. Mike Coe is in San Francisco. The what to expect from Uber's numbers tomorrow. Mike. Yeah, so we saw about four times the average daily options volume in Uber today. It traded over 60,000 contracts overall and one of the interesting things that we saw we have an implied move of a little over seven percent consider Lyft moved about 11% after they reported earnings, their first earnings release, and 16% by the end of that week. But actually, Uber is seeing some more bullish activity today. One of the trades I was looking at was the June 7th, 43 and a half weekly calls. Those are the ones that expire a week from this coming Friday. Somebody paid 55 cents for just over 2,500 of those. So that's somebody making a bullish bet that Uber is going to rally by at least 10% by the end of next week. And that would obviously be targeting the post-IPO highs probably of about $45 that we saw the day that they IPO'd, and it hasn't touched those levels since. One quick thing I would mention, too, is that Uber is probably trading a little bit cheaper, actually, than Lyft at about 5.9 times EV to EBITDA versus Lyft's six times. So it is possible that some of the weakness that we've seen in these ride-sharing companies is already baked into the cake, and that might be why we're seeing some of these bullish bets now. All right, Mike Co. thank you very much. For more options action, check out the full show Fridays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. But, Pete, he's talking your language. Uber, what do you he think? Is. I got to tell you, an incredible amount of option volume today. Playing both sides of it right now. I'm on the puts right now. I'm going to trim some of those up. And I put big call buying late in the day in Uber. All right, Pete, thank you very much. Up next, your final trades. All right, it is time for your final trades today on this Wednesday. Let's go now around the horn. Pete Nigerian, what do you got? I had a wonderful lady next to me, Halima, talking about oil. I tell you what, OIH, giddy up. It's going up. Not People are buying calls. Fire the OIH oil. Wow, Tim. Talk Disney. Again, multiple verticals, park studios, and Disney Plus. I think Disney is a multiple that's going higher. How about 25 times earnings Whoa. for the mouse little Steve. house? The house of mouse. Steve Grasso. A play off of Pete on TJ Maxx. Let's go Raw Stars. Nice. R-O-S-T up 8.5% year to date. 
They're going to benefit going forward with trade worries and trade headwinds. Ross Storms. Wow, there you oh, go. And Guy Adelman's effort by you. I just want to say. Five to five. Nine to five. Bell to five. Bell. The hard way. That's the hard way. Right there. Seven Energy, the as you mentioned earlier, sold some assets to Canadian assets for higher than expected. DBN. All right, got it, guys. Thank you very much. That's it for us. Bad Money with Jim Cramer begins right now. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash.